0: As almost all of you know, on Sundays, we've been in the gospel according to Mark. And as I said last Sunday, we're at Tuesday in the Passion Week in Mark's telling of the story. On Tuesday, Jesus encounters persistent opposition, really even entrapment from the religious leaders. Those five to six verbal conflicts, these verbal contests between Jesus and these Jewish authorities... All five to six of them are in Matthew and Mark and Luke, almost exactly the same. And none of them are in John. Go figure. Instead, the gospel according to John goes straight from the Sunday before the cross to the Thursday before the cross and to that evening, in fact. And from there, from that Thursday, He will then play the reel out at about one-tenth of the pace that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. This is the evening before Jesus' betrayal and arrest this Thursday. And Jesus and his disciples have assembled in an upper room for their last meal together, the last supper we sometimes call it. They're there for this meal and for some final teaching Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us about five to ten verses on this scene in the upper room. And John gives us five long chapters. I've said before in our study of Mark that I don't think God wants us to turn these four accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection into one super account. That was a popular thing to do in olden days in the church not a good idea I don't think he gave us four and each of these four have their own voice their emphasis their own literary devices and language and so you might have noticed as we're preaching through Mark on Sunday mornings we very rarely go and see what Luke did with this or what Matthew did with this or how it contrasts with John or or things we could insert right here but tonight I'd like us to do just that There is a time to recall, especially when you're in the middle of studying one of the gospel accounts, there is a time to recall that God has given us four and to thank him for the fact that he's given us four. So I promise to not take us through all of the five chapters that I just talked about here of John's account of the upper room, but I am going to try to take us through two of them tonight. John 13 and 14, the first two chapters of these five chapters with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. And as you might look down in your Bibles and see in John 13 and 14, that means we're looking at 69 verses tonight. So I will obviously be selective in what we try to cover here, but I'd like to give us something of a glimpse of this upper room and perhaps encourage you in upcoming days as we're going through Mark to think about what was happening there on that Thursday night. Maybe read on in John Go from 14 to 15 to 16 to 17 and marvel and stand in awe and be stirred in your faith. Chapters 13 and 14, let me point out a couple of verses within those chapters there, which I think best summarize the setting and the lessons that we need to see and that the apostles needed to see. One verse would be chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And similarly, chapter 14, verse 27, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. These are some of the sweetest, most tender words in all the Bible. Let not your hearts be troubled. We might want to ask why the disciples would need to hear this from their master. I mean, after all, let's think of the positives here. They were with him. They were alone with him. They were away from the crowd and away from the critics. And not often was that the case. They were in unhurried fellowship in this upper room with the Messiah. Not just eating with him, but feasting with him. And worshiping with him. This was a religious feast. But there are actually many reasons why their hearts would be troubled at this point. A little bit later on, I will stack up all of the reasons why their hearts would be troubled at a point like this. But let me, for now, just tell you the greatest reason for their concern and for their fears is that Jesus was going to depart from them. He was going to leave them. He was explicit about this. He said it. He hinted at it in other ways. And the circumstances themselves all were functioning like writing on the wall. This is getting to be the end, He's going to leave. He's going to depart from them. And we're used to that fact. We know the rest of the story. We know it's okay. We know they come around and they're not afraid, but they're bold and full of faith. We also know that even at this point and through earlier points in the story, these disciples are frequently afraid. They're frequently confused and troubled. We're not surprised that Jesus would ever be exhorting them to not be troubled, but instead believe to not be troubled or be afraid. But let's just place ourselves in their shoes for just a a minute here and, and realize they had left home. They had left households. Three years now they've traveled with this Jesus. They've seen the unthinkable and the unparalleled. They have seen glorious things and they have heard bewildering and awesome things. They love this Jesus. They don't quite know him all the way yet. But they love him. They keep following him. Even when he steps on their toes and and punches their proverbial noses, they still love him and they still keep following him. They don't get him yet, but they keep following him. They love him. People say departing is such sweet sorrow. When is it ever sweet? That seems like a polite thing you say to someone who you really don't want to stay with. Oh, departing is such sweet sorrow, but we got to go. <laughs> you know? I don't know why I did that in a girl voice right now. <laughs> the end of a busy day, I guess. But, but that's just a silly thing. We all know that. Sorrow is great and not sweet. It is bitter sorrow when we depart and don't want to. Imagine finding, you single guys, imagine finding the girl of your dreams. And you spend, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't spend three years before marriage enjoying her and getting to know her. No, no, no. But, but let's just imagine so for our, our purposes here. Imagine, you know it's the one, you know, you love, this is it. She goes, I'm leaving tomorrow. What? Where? Can I go with you? No, you, you can't go with me. It's impossible. What? What? We want to be with you. Well, that's what's going on here. Well, for 69 verses, I only have two points for you. Chapters 13 and 14, I think, can be broken down into just two points. The first is Jesus' departure, promised, pictured, and planned. Notice how I got subpoints in my one point. <laughs> Clever, huh? The next one has four. All right, Jesus' departure is promised and pictured and planned in chapter 13, starting in verse 1 and following. And notice the promise. We have John's explicit words which open chapter 13 and set the stage for everything that we're going to study tonight. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is the end. Literally in the Greek, it's he loved them to the finish. It is finished. During supper, verse 2 says, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. You see, the writing's on the wall. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, not to Judas's hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose. He's departing out of this world. He loves his own. He loves them even in this departure. He loves them to the end, to the finish. Yes, the devil's at work and (laughs) Judas will betray, but the Father has given all things into Jesus' hands. Here's the plan. He came from God He's now on earth and he will go back to God. Therefore, he rose. There's the promise. Here's the picture. The reason for his departure is pictured in what follows. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He washes their feet. You know that story. We won't take time to to read it, really. The foot washing that Jesus does is shocking, at least to Peter. No doubt to all of them, but especially Peter. Peter's the one that speaks up. Peter insists, you will not wash my feet. I wash your feet. You see, only the lowliest washed feet. Servants washed feet. People on the same plane didn't wash each other's feet. It, you just didn't do that. It's not like helping a friend move. As bad as that is, you still sometimes have to do it. But, but no one washed a friend's feet but here they are, they're all in the same plane. We all know they've been jockeying for power all through this story. No one's gonna wash the other's feet. So Jesus washes their feet. Peter insists, no. And Jesus tells him, verse seven, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. After I depart, after this whole thing's done, the death and resurrection, ascension, And then Peter said, verse 8, Well, then in that case, uh, wash my everything. And Jesus says, No, you're cleansed, and you just need a foot washing here, Peter. You're cleansed. Not all of you are cleansed, verse 11 tells us, referring to the one who was going to betray him. Not all of you are clean. You see, again, the writing is all over the wall in this thing of the foot washing being pictured as really A foreshadow, a symbol, not just of what the disciples should imitate and do to each other, though that's true, but first and foremost, it is self-humiliating servantry and cleansing which points to the cross. Jesus is the washer. He's the cleanser. He's the servant. He's the one who humbles himself. Yes, they should imitate that. Chapter 13, verse 14 says... If your master washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. But don't put the cart before the horse. It's salvation, then imitation. And Jesus said to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you're dead in your sins. It's a picture of what's to come is cross, and hence the departure out of this world. But then there's the plan. The plan part of this, we see the means of this departure getting clearer as Jesus gets verbally explicit about the betrayal that's to come. John has already told us as he introduced these verses. Jesus has already hinted at it as he washed the disciples' feet and talked with them. And now Jesus, in verses 18 and following, gets explicit about what's to come. Let me just read some of these verses in this section. Like in verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you regarding those Um, who, who are mine. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And if we skip to verse 21, John tells us after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. In verse 26, Jesus says there, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. But the rest of the disciples didn't understand that. Why did he give, him, did he give it to Judas? And even more, why did he tell G- Judas to whatever you're going to do, do it quickly, the end of verse 27. They didn't know why he said, whatever you do, do it quickly. Was he talking about going and buying more food or going on that sort of uh, trip as a messenger for the disciples because he was the one who carried the money. But as soon as Jesus gave him the bread, verse 30, it says, after receiving the morsel of bread, he, that is Judas, immediately went out and it was night, John tells us. Can't you just feel the weight of all that? Can't you just feel the weight of this scene? Can you just feel like the compounding awkwardness, concern, dilemma, oddity about all this. I mean, from Jesus washing your feet to this interaction with Peter to then telling that one is going to betray him and they ask him, is it me, is it me, is it me? And he gives bread to Judas and tells him to hurry up and then Judas leaves and it was night. By the way, John loves to contrast light and darkness. It was dark. When this happened, the whole scene is dark. It's ominous. There's the means by which Jesus will depart. It'll start with betrayal. But then Jesus even gets explicit with his disciples. It's not Judas's plan, so much as so much his and his father's plan. So you see in verse 31, there's actually a word missing. It's there in the Greek, but most of the translations, for some reason, don't have it. Verse 31 begins with a therefore. That's important. There's a connection there. Judas departed. He's out. He's going. He's away from them. He's he's doing his thing. He's betraying Jesus. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said this. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. When's he going to do this? Well, in just a few days, isn't he? The cross, just a couple days. The cross and then on Sunday, the resurrection, that's when the son will be glorified and glorified in the father and the father glorified in the son. The cross is the moment of glory. The cross and resurrection is, is this high point in John's telling of the story for the father's glory and the son's glory. And then Jesus says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You see the departing language once again. He says, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews back in chapter 11, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now back in chapter 11, he said other things to the Jews that don't apply to the disciples, like you're dead in your sins and you're going to stay in your sins and you're going to go to hell uh, and you can't come to me. But here, he just uses the phrase, implies it to the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come. It is true in a different way for the disciples. It's a little while that I'm with you. You're gonna seek me. You won't be able to find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. His departure is promised pictured and planned. Now, secondly, we have confusion Questions and comforting clarifications about Jesus' departure. There's confusion, questions, and comforting clarifications. Here's the question we get from Simon Peter. Remember, Jesus just said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So Jesus answered him. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, "Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you." And here, literally, this is, "My life on your behalf." implied is, "My life for yours." A substitution. Jesus, I will sacrifice my life. To save your life? What do you mean you go away and I can't come with you? That's easy. I will give up my life for you. Do you hear how that's an upside down gospel? Right? Jesus gives up his life for us. Peter had heard Jesus say in John chapter 10 as he talked about sheep and the shepherd. The shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And here Peter says, I will lay my life down for you. He doesn't get what he's saying, does he? So Jesus answered him, verse 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter, when push comes to shove, and then a second shove, and then a third shove, you're not gonna lay your life down for me. You're gonna deny me. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. But as for Jesus going to the cross, this makes clear. Peter won't go, and none of them can go. Not like Jesus is talking about. They are to follow Jesus' humble, servant-like sacrifice. That's what the washing of the feet scene ended on. Jesus saying, do this to each other. Yes, they should be like their, their servant savior, Jesus. But the cross, Jesus must go it alone. And it's at that point that we get to that verse of great comfort. Chapter 14, verse 1 Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then Jesus tells them what to believe and reasons for which they shouldn't be troubled. And now for the rest of this chapter, chapter 14, it's going to go back and forth where the disciples ask a question because Jesus said something strange, and then Jesus will answer the question and provide more clarification. And then he'll say something strange, and they ask another question. And then Jesus will provide more clarification, purpose to to give comfort and clarity to what's going on here. So he says in chapter 14, verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. <clears throat> my father's house. There was a Christian pop song when I was in college about my father's house. What was the band that played that? Audio Adrenaline. Audio Adrenaline. Thanks, Drew. You should you should do that for a living. Uh, yeah, my father's big big house. It's got lots and lots of rooms. It's got lots of space so you can play football, something like that. Thankfully, I don't remember all of it. <laughs> in my father's house. Now, what's the house here? There are all kinds of interpretations, and because we're doing 69 verses in about 30 minutes, we're, we don't have the time to do that. But uh, it's not heaven so much. Well, then you can think of it that way. Father's house is not mansions for us. The, the word mansion is never used here in most of the English translations. It's a father's house that has many rooms in it, okay? So the rooms, we get rooms, not mansions. We often like to think about how big our mansion is, perhaps. Some of us do, anyway. It's not about the place, though. It's about the person who's there at that place. The place, father's house, well, get this. Careful, your head might blow up. The father's house is the father himself. We dwell in him, I can't take time to prove that to you, but I tell you, that's it. In my Father's house, it's dwelling with Him forever and ever. And He calls it a house rather than a person or a being or a place because houses are intimate. And perhaps because the temple was also the Father's house. And, well, the new heaven and new earth would be like a giant big temple. Uh, My Father's house has many rooms, we don't know how many. It has just enough. It never, before Jesus comes back, says, No vacancy. It has many rooms. Jesus said to the disciples, troubled in spirit, If it weren't so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Would I have? No. I, I wouldn't have told you that I go to prepare a place for you if it were not so. But if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He goes to prepare a place for them does not mean that he's been working on it for 2,000 years. I know it's in all kinds of great Southern Gospel songs. I love Southern Gospel. A guy from Detroit living in Albuquerque loves Southern Gospel. Yeah, I do. But many of these songs say, you know, he's been working... Uh, something like, uh, if he made creation in six days, what's it going to be like when he's been working on our mansion for 2,000 years? That sings well, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, where's he going? He's going first to the cross. He's going to the cross. That's the means by which he'll prepare a place for us. It's not that there's this thing up there that he's working on, hammer and nail and glue and caulk and stucco or gold or silver or giant pearls. He has gone already to prepare a place for you. Before he went, he said to them, I go to prepare a place for you. That place is prepared. And one day he will come again and take them and us to himself that we might be with him also. Then we get a statement by Jesus that leads to that next big question from the disciples. Verse 4, he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. This leads to the second question. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way you're going. How can we know the way? I mean, that seems fair. We don't know where you're going. We don't know the location. We sure don't know the directions." But Jesus said to him, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas' question, how can we know the way, is answered by Jesus' famous statement, I am the way. Thomas, you're looking for directions? I'm the way. I'm the map. I'm the road. I'm the path. And there's no other way To the Father, except through me, and there's no other way through me except me going to the cross. And again, you can't go that with me. I go that alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don Carson says about that line, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says it's an amazing statement. I am the way, spoken by one whose way was the ignominious chain. Uh, shame of a Roman cross, that death despised by even criminals. I am the truth spoken by one about to be condemned for lying and not believed on by his own people. I am the life uttered by the one whose battered corpse would shortly rest in a dark tomb. Carson adds, there is glory in this paradox. There is indeed doesn't look like he's the way, the truth, or the life, but indeed he is, and we know it to be true. The only way. Then we get another statement from Jesus, which leads to the next confounding response of the disciples. Verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You can already anticipate the question, can't you? So here's the third question. Really, it's a confused question statement. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Oh, you can kind of understand why, Peter, why Philip might have said this. It's bold. It is indeed, right? Just show us the Father. That's enough. We'll be pleased if you do that. You could mock it, or you could just look up one verse before, and Jesus had said, you have seen the Father. And, Pete, and Philip's wondering, where? Where was it? We heard him. Mount of Transfiguration, your baptism. We heard him. Where'd we see him? Then Jesus answers. Verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Word and works in the fa- from the Father to the Son. Therefore, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe it because I say it, or else believe on account of the works themselves, the miracles. Now, this gets into all kinds of thick theology about the threeness and the oneness of the Trinity, how Father and Son relate, but but clearly Jesus is calling himself divine, that there is some shared divinity and glory between the Father and the Son, and Jesus is saying, You want to see the Father. Perhaps Philip was thinking, just give me a glimpse. Give me a picture. Give me something. What would it look like to see the Father? And Jesus is saying, you're seeing divine glory. Yes, veiled in flesh, but you're seeing it right before. You've been living with it for three years. We beheld his glory. John began his account. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Believe. The Father And the Son are one in seeing the Son. You've seen the Father because the Father's words and works are in Jesus and testify of it. Well, in the rest of the chapter, Jesus went on from there and it's a speech. Let me skip to the end and sort of wrap this up for us. Look at verse 25 of chapter 14. This gets into other things that Jesus sought to comfort the disciples with. Remember, they were troubled in their spirit about his departure, and he's been communicating to them more and more truth about why this is not bad but good, that this should be comforting news, not sad. So, verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. Again, soon I won't be with you, but I'm I'm with you. I'm saying it while I'm here. But the Helper... The Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit will come. Verse 27, the second half there, peace I leave with you. Maybe the Spirit is that peace. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give it to you. And then, here, just like chapter 14, verse 1, it said again, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How sweet and gentle the Savior is. Yes, there's occasional rebuke in these two chapters, but this whole scene is so gentle, fatherly, pastoral, kind, patient, clarifying, and sweet. Verse 29. And here we come to the last few verses, last two, three verses of the, of the chapter. He says, Now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk, talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. That's Satan. Yes, Judas is coming. Yes, a Roman army is coming. Yes, the cross is coming. And Jesus testifies here what's behind it all. The ruler of this world is coming. And in case we think, oh no, he's losing. This is sad. This is not good news. This is bad news. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. And then rise. Let us go from here. It seems like they actually stay there over the next three chapters. But I think John lets us see that. Let us go from here to remind us how how quickly this thing's moving to the arrest and to the trial to the crucifixion and then on the third day the resurrection so what were the reasons for them being troubled let's just review these quickly I mean, they could be troubled simply by that whole scene of Jesus washing their feet or, or by Jesus saying that one of you is not clean or one of you will raise his heel against me back in chapter 13. Jesus himself was troubled when he spoke of the betrayal to come and then he told of the betrayal that was to come and then he also told of Peter's coming, denial. And then through it all, sprinkled throughout, are all these references to his departure and them being unable to come to him and them thinking they're unable to ever go where he would go or to find where he would go. But actually, his departure, that is the cross, is the means by which God is glorified and sinners are saved and heaven is opened wide and we gain the Father's house and the Father's presence And we gain being with him one day. So what are the things that for us we should believe for our comfort and for our confidence? We, we people who, who live in a time when Jesus is still departed. And we too have times when we're troubled in our souls. Not to mention our bodies. And what are the things that John 13 and 14, would have us believe so that we would not be troubled Well, we would remember that it was his plan to go to the Father and that he is coming back for his own and that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Really, because the cross and resurrection are finished, he has prepared that place. He has made that path, he will come again and he will bring us to himself and to the Father and to a final home. We will be home. We will be with him. How, and how long have you really been homesick? I mean, those seasons of homesickness. Maybe you've had a business trip that's lasted three whole weeks. Maybe you've gone to see a, a sick mom or dad and you've had to stay and care for him for three weeks or four weeks. There is a homesickness that is relentless and painful. It is good to go home. And going home, that address that, address that you know on your mail that comes to the house... Going home to that place will be nothing like what it will be one day when we go home to the Father, where we will be with Him. In the meantime, we we know the way, right? Jesus told them, You know the way. And then He told them, I'm the way. You know me. We do know the way. We know the way. He's the way. And we believe that He's given us His Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's given us his peace. It's not peace like the world has. It's supernatural peace that passes all understanding. All these things he has spoken to us. And these things have taken place. Many of these things have taken place. He told the disciples, I'm telling you this in advance so you'll believe after it takes place. For us, more has taken place. Even if more is still to come.